This morning, uh, we're continuing our series on uh, love, and today we're going to be talking about probably one of the harder teachings on love, which is love your enemy. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 6, and uh, we're gonna, and I'm going to s- split this up into two parts, so rather than one long sermon, hopefully this will become two shorter sermons, but I think it'll be better served that way. Jesus, as we open up our hearts to you, I pray you would just... Speak to us, even if it's just one thing, God, one thing we can take away from the message today where you're talking to us, you're growing us, you're helping us live more like Christ uh, as we walk this earth in these days. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was uh, younger, when I was in high school, I lived overseas, and I went to a school that had a bunch of different nationalities. And uh, so a lot of my friends were from all over the world, at least in high school, but I, I had, you ever have one of those people in your life where they're kind of surface friends, but underneath your enemies, like bitter enemies, you know, in front of everybody, you're nice and you play the game. You don't want to like cause a scene or be awkward, but underneath you're like, I just can't stand that guy. You know, I just can't stand him. Well, I had one. He happened to be what I call my French friend uh, uh, because he was French uh, from France and, and him and I... I mean, we were like, you know, we were fine on the surface, but, you know, underneath, we were like, you know, and we come, and the worst thing about enemies, you can often end up competing with them because you don't want them to like get the better of you. So one day he's like, you know, I'm going to learn how to scuba dive. So what do I do? I, I'm going to go learn how to scuba dive, you know, and, and so we're diving and the, and the instructor's like, you know, okay, only go about 15, 20 feet. He comes up, he goes, I'm going to go 60 feet. So what do I do? I go 60 feet, you know? Uh, Another dive, we're out there, and we get up, and all of a sudden we see along the reef a a whole school of fins, shark fins, coming up through the water. So what does that idiot French kid do? No, just kidding. I'm over that. (laughs) What does does my French friend do? Oh, he's suiting up. He wants to go swimming with the sharks. So what does Pastor Tom have to do? Notice what your enemies can do to you. Your enemies can make you do stupid things that any normal, rational person wouldn't do. I suited up and I went down and I swam with the sharks. Yes, that's dumb. You should be, you should be thinking, Pastor Tom, that's not very smart. It wasn't very smart, you know. Uh, these are the kind of reef sharks that bite. You know, they had the black tips, not the white tips. And so, you know, but I, of course, and of course, what am I thinking the whole time? Shark, if you're going to bite anybody, bite him. Right, you know, bite him. You know, it's like that joke about the bear. I don't have to outrun the bear. I only have to outrun you. And I, so I'm thinking, I don't have to outswim the sharks. I just have to outswim him. But, uh, but that, you know, that's the kind of friendship we had. It wasn't really a friendship. It was, we were really kind of sort of enemies. Well, in our senior year, we, we, uh, we were doing a big drum, drama production. And I was heavily involved in it. And the drama teacher comes up to me and says, you know what, I think we need your French friend in the, in the play. And I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> you don't understand. I mean, we're nice in front of you, but we hate each other. This, I mean, I don't want him in the play. This man is my bitter enemy. And my teacher looked at me and he said, yeah, but you need him. I'm like, I don't need him. I don't need him. And he said, Tom, He's making you better, stronger, faster. He says, 
you, he said, you are learning more from him as an enemy than you are from your friends. And I, I remember when he first said that, I looked at him and I thought, man, you old fool. You know, I mean, I just, I just, you know, I just thought, what a dumb thing to say. You know, it is not natural to want to learn from your enemies. It's natural to want to get back at them, you know. So I remember thinking, oh, great. You know, if I make the teacher mad, then this could throw the whole playoff. And so, you know, I'm trying to make, you know, but, but the fact of the matter is over the years, first of all, before we graduated, uh, me and Frenchie, uh, you know, we, we, we had it out and had a good talk and became friends. But, but, but that wasn't the point. Over the years, I really thought about that statement. Tom, you can learn a lot more from your enemies than you ever could your friends. More about myself. And I can say that as a testimony that in my life, I have learned a lot more from the people who challenged me and opposed me than I did from the people who praised me. And so, you know, this morning, when we talk about loving your enemies, the fact is, Sometimes, a lot of times, God uses our enemies for us, not against us. Sometimes the greatest tool of growth that God has for us, it's not the tool of growth we want, but it's the tool of growth that God knows will work, is to give us an enemy, an enemy to challenge us and an enemy to grow us and fashion us more into like Christ. I've found that essentially there are kind of two approaches to Christianity, two, two types of Christians that I found. And, and the one type is the very self-sufficient kind. You know, Jesus is more for the afterlife. Jesus is about heaven, but on earth, it's more about what I do. You know, kind of self-sufficiency, self-achievement, self-strength and self. And, you know, of course, their favorite byline is often, you know, God helps those who help themselves. And I get that scripture. I understand what that means. I I get all that. But a lot of times that can be misconstrued into it's all about myself, self, 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 and what I do, and kind of a, a real ignoring or not even believing that God is out there involved in our lives at all, where the other side of the camp is that I am sufficient because it is God who strengthens me. I am sufficient because God who opens the door of opportunity. I am sufficient because it is God's reward that I'm living for, that God is intimately and personally involved in my life. That I can pray to God for my little individual problems and he will be there to go through life with me. Whereas on the other side, you know, yeah, God's there. He's out there. He's great. He loves us. He died on the cross for us. But man, in this world, you got to use your brain. You got to, it's all about what you do. Both sides do. It's the emphasis on where the trust is. One is a trust in self-sufficiency, where one is a trust in God's reward for following him through obedience. And so we get to our passage today in Luke chapter 6. And Luke says, beginning in verse 27, but to you who are listening, I say. Now notice this. Jesus knows he's got a bunch of people listening to him and that there are some people not listening to him. Uh, You know, there's probably some of you right now, you tuned me out five minutes ago. Maybe I can get you back right now. They say in, in, in preaching school, if you stop talking for a second, that gets everybody's attention. You know. Gotcha. Okay, got you back. So Jesus says, but to you who are listening, I say, and this is the most popular statement in the Bible, right? 
Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. I mean, it's not even like those who are annoyed with you. Those who hate you, do good to them. Bless those who curse you. These are people who, oh, go to hell. You know, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Now, here's the thing. If you're on this side of the equation, where it's self-sufficiency, and I got to do for myself, and it's all about me. I mean, God's great for the afterlife, and I can't wait to meet him there, but we're on our own here. This makes utter nonsense. If I give you my coat, I'm just out of coat. What am I going to wear? If I give you my shirt, well, I'll have no shirt. If I give you all this stuff that I worked hard for, then where am I going to be left? That's a very self-sufficient thinking. When you're on this side, and it's all about living for God's reward, you say, you know what? I can give you my coat. I can give you my shirt. I can give you my shoes because it was God who supplied the need in the first place. Oh, yeah, he made me, gave me strength in my hands to work and a brain to think with. But it was God who opened the door for opportunity to supply in the first place. So I give it all, knowing that since God is my source, whatever my need is, it's gonna, I can give you my coat, and if I need a coat, God's going to get me a coat. I can give you my lunch, and I know that if I need a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken, God can get me a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken. Ooh, it's getting near lunchtime. I should not have used that example. Now I know what I'm going to be thinking about the rest of the message here. All right, let's keep going. But you, get, you, get, you see the two sides? One side is, oh, man, I... I'm out. I'm just out the stuff. Where the other side is, you know what? I, no matter how I treat you, because God is my source and because God is at work in my life, I don't have to worry in fear. God's got me covered. I don't know how it's going to come. I don't know when it's going to come. I don't know where it's going to come. I don't know what it's going to look like. I just trust that if God is leading me to live my life and act this way and follow him in this attitude and mindset, he will be there for He will supply my needs. He will provide for my life. He will protect me. He says in verse 31, do to others as you would have them do to you. For if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Now, when Jesus talks of sinners, I think a lot of us think, oh, he's talking about bank robbers and thieves and adulterers and potheads. You know, I mean, we, we, we think of, you know, maybe all these people that are caught are trapped in something. But the fact of the matter is, when Jesus is talking about sinners, he's talking about people who live with a perspective of life independent from God, from God's help, from God's existence, from God's mercy. It's just, it's just God's just nothing. God, you know, God, functionally, God is nothing. And so there's just a a functional rebellion happen. And Jesus is saying, look, even for people who live as if there's no God, love those who love them. Verse 33, do good to those who do good to them. Lend to those who are going to repay them back in full. Verse 34. Verse 35, but if you love your enemies and do good to them, 
and lend to them without expecting anything back. Ooh, that's the hard one. That's the hard one. Then your reward will be great. Oh, there it is. There it is. There, that's right. That's where Jesus gives it the formula all the way, if there is a formula. When you live in self-sufficiency, it's all on me, and I got to do everything, and God's great for two seconds after I die, but two seconds before, it's all on me. You don't really think of God rewarding you. You think of how you reward yourself. But when you live with the perspective of, I'm going to follow and obey God and expect, I'm using that word deliberately, expect God's reward. God says, I want you to live like that. If you live obeying and following me, you should expect I'm going to come through for you. If you don't, that's doubt and faithlessness. You should expect I'm going to be there when you need me. He says, then your reward, from who? From God, will be just a little, right? Great. And you will be children. All of a sudden, God won't be God, the judge on the throne. If we're his children, then what has he now become? Our father. A father who provides for his children who causes the rains to come on the righteous and the wicked, who allows the sun to come up each and every day on everyone because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Nothing can seem more natural. Nothing can seem more unnatural than to love and bless those who have mistreated us. And God knows that. Believe me, he knows that. It's not natural to extend friendship to an enemy. It's not natural to extend love to an enemy when you're over here. When you're over here, the enemy is just a little sideshow in life. The enemy has no power over you. The enemy has no power because the focus and the trust is so God to you and you to God that the enemy no longer has the ability to take from you when it's all self-sufficiency. So it's where the trust ends up, trusting in God's reward or trusting in our own ability. That's really what loving our enemies is all about. Every time we're faced with people who mistreat us, we have kind of three options. The first one is to hate them. And I got to admit, this is the one that comes easiest to me. Hate them with a total hatred. Get angry. Get mad. Get, get violent. You know, I, I used to get more violent with my body. Now, now it's amazing how violent I can get with my words. And, and the fact of the matter is I found after, you know, <laughs> after 41 years of life, I found that reacting that way only leaves you angry bitter and cynical. And it firmly puts you over here. Firmly puts you over here. You don't even know that side exists anymore after a while. Just leaves you angry, bitter, resentful, cynical, sarcastic. Number two, the second way we can do with it is we can struggle to hold, to bottle up the anger. 
We may have an enemy. They may be making us mad, but we're going to take the high road and we're going to bottle all that in. Well, that leaves you emotionally exhausted and burnt out. Probably thinking you deserve it when you don't. The third thing we can do is we can channel that anger when we're on this side. We channel that anger up to God. Say, God, I have an enemy. They are frustrating me. I'm so angry. I give my anger to you. And right now, I'm going to choose to bless them. I'm going to pray for them. I want you to help me to love them. And if they need anything, any sort of punishment or discipline, I trust you to give it. You, God, are more qualified than me, Tom, to deal with my enemies. That's a statement of huge faith. But when you get there, the result is peace. Why? Because your enemies no longer have any power over you. That's why Jesus says, love your enemies. Because the moment you begin to hate them, they begin to have more power over you than God. And God doesn't want that. He knows where that road leads. So, my, sort of my what to do before you have an enemy. Next Sunday, we'll, what, we'll, we'll, we'll go into what to do when you have an enemy. This is preparing for one. What to do before you have an enemy. First, separate feelings from love, Okay. Jesus isn't asking you to feel all lovey-dovey toward people who hurt you and mistreat you. That's, that's probably not going to happen. You'll just be lying to yourself and lying to others. You know? The feelings don't always come at first. They may come later, but they don't always come at first. But that's why love is not based on feelings. Feelings do this. You know, they go, mm, I feel good. I feel bad. I feel tired. I feel sad. I feel all these things. And you're like a puppet on a string doing this thing. That's what feelings are. You know your feelings can change based on what you eat. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody said amen to that, you know. I mean, yeah, you can eat something and feel, you know, feel sad, feel happy, feel, you know. Feelings are so fickle and can be influenced so easily by, by, by peripheral things. When love is a choice, whether you feel it or not, your convictions propel you more than your feelings. So you make that choice to love the enemy and to surrender the whole sordid affair up to God, including your feelings. Second thing is pursue contentment in Christ and you will have less enemies. Why? Because when following Christ, following Christ's plan and obeying God's will for your life becomes the big thing, enemies are more of a sideshow. There are more things on the side that kind of prick at you a little bit. But, I mean, when this is what you're really living for, they no longer have power over you because your contentment comes through Christ. And that makes your enemies even more mad at you often because they're like, man, I'm mad at him. I'm trying to get him to fight with me. And all he's talking about is how much he loves Jesus and how God's just doing such great things in his life. Oh, I just want to punch him in the face for that, you know? Your enemies may hate you more because you're not giving in to their tirades. You're not giving in to their poke. You know, when enemies are poking, they want you to poke back. Believe me, you know. When you don't, you're like, you know what? 
I'm, I'm so focused on what God's doing in my life right now, I'm not going to give this any power. I mean, if there's something to work out, let's work it out, but I'm going to work it out with my eyes looking toward Christ, not toward the negativity. And all of a sudden, you know, it just, it, it can either anger people, it can also teach people, wow, look at that. That's an amazing way to handle a conflict. Third, let forgiveness come quicker. Let forgiveness come quickly. There's something still working on. Something that's hard. Because for me, forgiveness is hard before somebody asks for it. <laughs> I'm one of those people, I want you to ask for my forgiveness before I really give it to you. And if somebody is actively mistreating me, it's very hard to forgive them. Again, because the feelings well up. But when you make forgiveness a way of life, like God has made it a way of life with us, you'll find that bitterness does not take root in your soul. And bitter people are angry people. And their needs almost never go met because they don't even know what their needs are. And their needs get confusing and askewed. And all of a sudden, you're working with angry, needy people who don't even know what their needs are and they just have bitterness. We're a confused human race, believe me. When forgiveness comes quicker, you spare yourself the anger and the bitterness and the unmet needs that often haunt us in the middle of the night. And then finally, fourth thing is, know that love brings confidence. When you are acting in love, you are a confident person. When an enemy no longer has power over you, and you, you're, you're following God, obeying God, walking the path that he has for you, you would be amazed at how your confidence just begins to rise. It's the natural outflow, outcrop, of when we begin to follow God, obey God, do it the way he asks us to do it, love our enemies and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You know what people will start saying? Man, there's just a confidence about you. I don't know what it is, but there's just a confidence about you. Why? Because the more we look at how big and awesome God is, the less fear rules our lives. The less enemies rule our lives. The less dread rules our lives. And the more we say, you know what? Anything could happen today. As long as I got God and God's got me, I can overcome it all. All of a sudden, even your enemies are kind of like, I want that. I want that. On a deeper level, all our enemies come from God. He allows enemies into our lives for reasons that are rarely apparent at the time we get our enemies. If you ever look at the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, Joseph's enemies were his brothers. His brothers hated Joseph. First, they threw him in an empty well to die, but then they thought, wait a minute, if he dies, we'd get nothing. Why don't we sell him into slavery, and then at least we can get some money and go get our own bucket of chicken. All right, I got to get chicken out of my mind. Okay, so, you know, so they get the money, and they sell Joseph into slavery. Jo Joseph becomes a slave, and, and, of course, his own brothers sold him out, so he's got enemies there. And then the wife of the slave master makes sexual advances toward him. Well, he says no, and her pride is hurt, 
So she falsely accuses him of rape, and now he ends up in prison where he's probably awaiting to be executed. You can't be accused of rape by a high-ranking you know, wife of an Egyptian official and probably not face the death penalty. You know, they, life was pretty cheap back then. He was probably... But the interesting thing was, he spent years in prison. Years in prison. And all of a sudden, over the course of time, he interprets a few dreams for Pharaoh, and he gets out of prison and becomes the vice president, the vice Pharaoh, the viceroy of Egypt, second in command. And then his brothers show up his original enemies. And they are Joseph's enemies. They sold him. They sold him. And when they show up, Joseph says something amazing. What I believe in all of my readings of the Bible, I've read through it many times. I've studied it on a level I never thought I would. And I will tell you this. This verse ranks in the top five in the whole book. Let me read it to you. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. His brothers are standing in front of him and they found out who he is. And they're afraid that Joseph is gonna kill him, kill them. And Joseph looks at his brothers and he says this, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. At the time he was thrown in slavery, did Joseph see that? No. While he was rotting in prison, did he see that? No. At that point, life just seemed to be bad, bad, bad. But when now he was all of a sudden in a position to save his family from famine that would have surely killed off many of them, he's able to look and it all makes sense. God used my enemies for good. What you meant for evil, God meant for good because if I hadn't have saved you, then a little man named Judah would have died. And if a little man named Judah would have died, we would have never got Jesus. And if Jesus never would have come, then you and I wouldn't have been here. We have no hope. Thank God Joseph was able to love his enemy brothers or else we'd all be in deep doo-doo. That's the beauty that's the beauty of when, when we follow God not being fully aware of why or how or, or how, it, how it all is. At some point, it becomes apparent. and We go, oh, the Bible isn't as dumb as we thought it was. God isn't as stupid as we thought he was. It all makes sense further on down the road. One final note. Your enemies will most often come from those close to you not from those distant. I know if I were to say, who are your enemies? Stand up and say your enemies. Some of you would say ISIS, right? Some of you might say Osama bin Laden. Uh, Some of you might say, you know, these big, I don't know the guy from North Korea, but him, you know. The fact of the matter is, yeah, they're kind of our national enemies. I I get that. They they have an enemy-esque, but really they're not enemies directly and personally to us. The enemies that you'll face are close. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, a man and a woman's enemies will be the members of his own household. In fact, in that very passage, he specifies three relationships 
that will be enemy relationships. One, a father and a son. A mother and her daughter. A mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law. Enemies cause pain and hurt. I've seen fathers hurt their sons. Sons hurt their fathers. I've seen mothers hurt their daughters. And daughters hurt their moms. And I've seen mother-in-laws. Won't even go down. I won't even finish that sentence. <laughs> Be <clears throat> early on when I was a youth pastor up in Tacoma, there was an incident that happened where a father and son got in a fist fight. And the son was almost 18, so he was able to do some damage. And the father did a lot of damage. And he left the house and never went back. And declared his father his biggest enemy. And he jumped from house to house. And then eventually, when nobody else would house him, he, he enlisted in the armed forces. And it was 2004. And so he immediately was sent to Afghanistan. He spent two years as a combat soldier in Afghanistan. When he came back, he had contacted me and said, I want to have a meeting with my dad. And he said, I think you better be there to make sure we don't kill each other. So my thought is, great. You know, I'm going to be the guy in the middle of these two while they're trying to scratch each other's eyes out. So I'm no, I'm no idiot. I'm a lot smarter than I look. I get one of the biggest pastors on staff. You know, he's six foot, you know, just huge guy. You need to come into the meeting with me. Why? You need to come into the meeting with me. So we're in there, and we're, you know, they're, they're sitting like this, and we're sitting like this, and you know, we're ready to, like, restrain them. And he comes in, and he's wearing his military uniform. And normally I'd seen military uniforms where they got a little bit of stuff here, you know. He's got stuff hanging off his, off his, you know, jacket, whatever it was. I mean, I'm looking and going, I know a few of those. These, these are combat medals. And he, he sits down, and they're looking at each other for a while, and, and the, the soldier's not saying a word. He's just looking down at the table, and all of a sudden, his eye, I mean, he just starts crying. He just starts crying. And he just starts crying. I mean, this is this warrior. You know, I would not want to tangle with this kid ever. You know, this warrior, he just starts crying. The dad's looking at us like, do I do, you know? And and so the other pastor, who was actually one of my supervisors, he said, I don't think we need to be here. So we stood up and we left. And the dad comes over and the two hug and they embrace. For hours, they sit there in that room talking things out. And I mean, just enemies that had become a son and a father again. Later, I asked him, you know, how he had felt about that. And he said something very interesting. He said, yeah, my dad was my enemy. But when I was over there in combat, you realize any given day could be your last. And the thing that killed me the most was that I would die. And I would never be able to say sorry to my father. That we would die with the last thing being the fight we had. 
And then that would be it. He said, man, to just be here in church and hold my dad. And he said, you know, when you're at war, you don't know you're going to make it another minute, much less another day. And he said, the fact that I was there and he said, it, it just overwhelmed me. He said, I was weeping because God had allowed me to live. My dad was there. He said, the whole moment, it just overwhelmed me. So I, I said, I, I, I couldn't hold it in. I don't even know what I was crying about. I was just crying because my emotions I had pent up for so long just, just fell all over the place. I thought to myself, maybe God's not so stupid to say, love your enemies. Because we never know when our enemies, those close to us, may not only become our friends, but our family. Bow your heads with me. This morning, we've talked about a hard saying. It's not easy to love those who mistreat us. But I think if I can say anything of what the Lord is saying, we will not be free until we set those free who have mistreated us. And God wants us to be free. Can we do this in and of ourselves? Maybe. But I think it takes the Holy Spirit inside of us to give us the strength to live out this teaching from Jesus. And so, if you have ever had an enemy, have an enemy, or are smart enough to know in the future you may one day have an enemy, please repeat this prayer after me. Say, Lord Jesus, give me the strength to love my enemies, to pray for them, to bless them, and to trust you for your reward in my obedience. In Jesus' name. One more thing before we close. In order to really do this, you have to have the Holy Spirit. And so if you would bow your heads and close your eyes, if you've never made that decision, nobody's born a Christian. Nobody's born into Christianity. At some point, you make that choice. You make that choice to say, you know what? I want to make Jesus my God. I want to become his follower, and I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what happens. You say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I judge it. I need, I need your forgiveness. I need the cross. I want to go to heaven with you. I want to cross that line from death to life. If you'd like to make that decision to become a follower of Jesus, or maybe rededicate it, you walked away, but you know what? You want, to, you want to stamp that again. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Just go ahead and look up at me right now. Amen. 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 Why don't, amen. Amen. Let's, let's pray this together. Say, Lord Jesus, I confess to you I've sinned and I'm a sinner. I need your grace. I believe you are the Lord. I invite you into my heart. Fill me with the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.